I had one of those crazy weeks. Did anybody else have like a crazy week? Uh, I feel like February break for a kid, it's like some of you, okay, like three of us had a crazy week. But um, February is notoriously a crazy week in the state of Maine and New England in general. Uh, February is considered like for many, the cruelest month. I know T.S. Eliot in the poems, like April is the cruelest month, but no, February is definitely the cruelest month for us here in February and the craziest month. Uh, we look outside and, you know, the freshness of winter is sort of passing, right? We didn't have much of a winter this year, so we don't really feel it. But generally, like around this time, we got like a couple of really big snowstorms that you wanted to have in December around Christmas, but now you're really kind of, oh, I got to get out there and clear this. And, uh, and you know, actually, usually we do have a really, really, really big snowstorm sometime in February in Maine and New England in general, like a big nor'easter. And some of you who are older, you remember like Superstorm 78? Remember that? Yeah, and then the ice storm and we lost all that power and everything for like, you know, three weeks. It was really challenging. Uh, well, I guess in, this is the origin of, of uh, February break for school. Because I'm a teacher and I'm like, why, why are we breaking in February? It doesn't really seem to make much sense to me. But I found out the history behind it. And be, in uh, 1915 to 1916, they had back-to-back -back really hard winters. And they had m massive amounts of snow. And, uh, and so it was really hard to get places and everything. And they ended up saying... Uh, you know, why don't we just take a break at the end of February just to give students a break and to give teachers a break? And uh, it, it turned out that uh, that time of year, especially the end of February, teachers were like statistically the crankiest and the kids were really disruptive and cranky too in February. And a lot of the moms are like, yep. You know, it didn't take a survey to know that one. I could have told you that. And so when they took the break, school just seemed to go a little bit better for everybody. So they kept the break. So basically, the origin of February break is we're all a little bit crazy this time of year, and it's good for us to take a break. And then, you know, on top of that, I just think Fe February is a weird month. It starts out with Groundhog Day, which is just a weird holiday, don't you think? I mean, who came up with that? It's like a desperate attempt for a holiday after Christmas and New Year's, right? So like, I know what we'll do. We'll get a groundhog and we'll get it to come out and we'll hold it and we'll see if it sees it. How do they know if it sees its shadow? I don't know. Is there like a groundhog whisperer somewhere and they kind of like figure it out? And, uh, and then I guess I was reading about this, but the earliest groundhog days, they actually ate the groundhog. So that shows you how desperate February can be for, for holidays. And then, you get, and then you get Valentine's Day, which sounds like a really good holiday. On the surface, it's all about love. But if you're married or single or whatever, it's like this holiday that's a, a minefield, you know, as a husband. You're like, because your wife always says, oh, I don't need anything for Valentine's. That's a lie. They're lying to us, right? And then you're like, okay, you just think, she's a Christian, she's not going to lie to me, so you don't do anything, or you do minimal, and then you're like, 
find out really quickly that the expectations were different, right? And the, and the expectations, expectations for a Valentine's Day are so high, and so it's hard to, 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 to meet that. And then, you know, February break's kind of psycho, and then you get um, President's Day, which I feel like, um, like the whole eco economy and, and, and salespeople, they know we're psycho, so they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll get them to buy the most expensive items in this week because they'll fall into the trap for sure. So like, yeah, impulsively buy a car. That's really great. <laughs> and it's going to help us feel better. And so you can feel at this time of year, and I don't know if you feel it, but sometimes I feel it, sort of misaligned, a little bit out of sync. Um, if you've had kids home all week, you can feel a little bit out of sync. And just sometimes... People get seasonal affective disorder at this time of year. And I was looking at that too. At the end of February, our melatonin levels are the highest. That's like the sleepy chemical your body makes. So if you feel a little sleepier this time of year. And then our, our serotonin levels from, and our vitamin D is at its lowest. So you're going <laughs> to... This is a rough combination. You're going to get sleepy, grumpy people <laughs> in, 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 in February. And so it's kind, of, it's kind of a cattywampus time of year. I always wanted to say that in a sermon, cattywampus. Um, so it's a good time to press into God, you know, and to, to realign ourselves with that and to refocus on Jesus. And then let the Holy Spirit kind of flow into us and bring us back into that alignment that we all seek. And I don't know, I think one of the reasons why we come on Sunday is to sort of, I want to worship God, and I want to realign myself with what's the most important thing in my life, right? And I want to let God kind of come into my life in a special way. And it's good to stop and do that. And I feel like one of the things that really connects with that in the scriptures and this is this idea of righteousness. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, talks a lot about righteousness. And, you know, when we think about righteousness, it's not a conversational word, is it? Like, you don't hear someone say, oh, man, that's righteous, or I'm righteous, or he's righteous. Unless you're like a surfer in California, and you're like, righteous, dude, you know, like point break or something, right? So, so what does righteous mean? And it's a surprise because a lot of times we think of righteous as being like pious or a good person. But righteous in the Bible through the Old and New Testament is very, very much a relationship word. And it means that you're in a good relationship with somebody. You're you're in good standing with that person. And um, you can feel sometimes when you're not in a good standing with somebody, and we'll talk about that. But, but righteous, as Jesus speaks about righteousness, is we're in a good relationship with God, and we're in a good relationship with other people. Now, the New Testament, especially Paul, says this is a big part of the good news because none of us are righteous right? If I ask most of you, are you righteous? M many of you would say, mm, I, don't, I wouldn't use that term for myself. 
But Paul, the Apostle Paul writes that we're made righteous through Jesus. Isn't that good? Like you might not feel righteous right now, but you are because of the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus has come and covered you. So no matter what you've done, no matter how we might feel about things, if we've come to Christ and we're faithful, right? We're just like faithful where we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior, our personal Savior, then we step into this righteousness, this rightness with God. So when God looks at us, he's like, oh, he sees just Jesus. He sees righteous. And that's a good thing. I really like that. But sometimes we get a misaligned because we live in this world and we know that if we, if we do things, they're going to make us feel either aligned with that righteousness, like we're stepping into it, or we're misaligned with that righteousness. And in many ways, it's not like we're earning something, but we're, we're living into this goodness, this greatness, this good news that Jesus has given us. Um, and we feel better when we're doing that and we feel worse when we're misaligned. And, um, and so with righteousness, um, you kind of can feel this sometimes with people that you know. Your, your, um, your spouse, right? You know really quickly in your household this. If you kind of are talking and you say something and it goes awry and it's just not, uh, the conversation goes off. This happened to me last night. And... Um, and you just feel automatically like, oh, we're not like seeing eye to eye. Sometimes we call it that. Like we're misaligned, right? That's what, all these words are misalignment words that we use. Misinterpreted, you know? Um, and you're like, oh, wow, we got to get it, get it together. Or maybe you're at work and you have tension with somebody or school or in, a friend. And you go away and you feel awkward about the whole interaction. You ever feel that way? And then you go back and you're like, hey, are we good Basically, you're saying, are, are we righteous? You get the concept? And I think it's very natural for us to like look up, um, beyond even that and ask the question, God, are we aligned? Are we righteous? Are we good? We, we all ask that. I remember asking that even as a young person, like, am I good, God? Are we good? You know, are we aligned? And so Jesus... In Matthew chapter 6, and that's the scripture we're going to look at today, kind of addresses this kind of stuff and gives us some things that help us through our actions to align with the righteousness that we've received from Jesus, to like walk in step with it. Now, this isn't a way that you're going to get more in good standing with God. Jesus has done that for you. He has. But it is a way for you to walk in that relationship that Jesus has received, or you've received through Jesus. So you're going to get the fruits of righteousness. And there are some really good fruits of righteousness. So let's take a look in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read through this so we get an idea of what Jesus is saying. He says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will receive, you will receive no re reward from your Father in heaven. So 
When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what you've done in secret, secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what you've done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans, for they think by their many words they will be heard do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Really interesting passage, huh? Three different things that Jesus covers here that are connected with righteous, like things we do um, to align ourselves with God and align ourselves with other people, too. And that's kind of neat. The first one, give to the poor right? The second one, pray. And the third one, fast. And the interesting thing, he, he aligns this with three different principles be, that go right along with the things to do. He says, make it a practice. Do it often, like do it on a regular basis. Keep it secret, right? Did you notice that? Everyone says, and, and what you do in secret, God will see. And these are things that God wants to be sort of secret things in our heart with him. And then you'll receive a reward. So I want to go into those things and, and really look at those. Make it a practice, Jesus says, on these things. Giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. He says, when you do these things, not if you do these things. You notice that? He really shifts in the whole Sermon on the Mount here. Before, he's just talking kind of freewheeling about a lot of different things and a lot of different, like, you've heard it said, but I say this. And now he's saying, he goes right into this thing, when you. So he's saying, we should be doing these things. They're not like, oh, I guess that's kind of a nice thing for Christians to do, but these ought to be some core practices that we all have, Jesus is saying. They're core practices that the Jewish people had, but they certainly translate right into things Jesus did, and they're really things that we see the, the apostles and the people in the New Testament did. 
Um, so he says, when you, not if you, when you pray, when you give to the poor, when you fast. Because they're foundational principles for our relationship with God to keep that healthy and aligned, and our relationship with other people to keep that healthy and aligned. And we all can understand that there's foundational principles that we know of right away, intuitively, to have a good relationship, right? You go, I gotta be honest with whoever I have a relationship with. If you, it's hard to have a relationship with somebody if there's constant lying going on. You know that, right? Deceit really undermines a relationship. Um, you, you, you need to spend time together, right? Um, you need to serve one another. Um, and so Jesus is saying, practice these things and make them a practice. Uh, in school, we have a saying, practice makes... <laughs> we don't say that because we're not perfect. We say, practice makes progress. And I like that one a lot better because for Jesus, right, it really translates well. Are you going to be perfect? No, not really perfect. But will you make progress if you do these things? Will you make progress in, in bearing fruit of righteousness in your life that is, is going to be really great? Absolutely. And so Jesus says that we should practice these things. He says, keep it a secret. Keep these things a secret just between you and God. What's that all about? Well, a big part of it is about us having a pure heart. Because Jesus before this says, Blessed are those who are pure in heart because they'll see God. Isn't that great? Like you'll, you'll see God more in your life if you practice these things and you're pure in heart with them. And I, I feel like we'll, we'll never fully experience the joy and the freedom um, that God wants us to have if we're consumed with what other people think about us. And so Jesus is saying, Keep this between you and God. It's not about, it's like the hypocrite thing is about what other people see and you feeling good or not good about what they see you do. But here he's saying, do this between you and God first and then the other stuff will align itself too. Does that make sense? And I feel rough because for a lot of younger people who have grown up with social media, this is a real problem right now, isn't it? Like depression is high and anxiety is really high with, with kids who are really getting fed a lot of what do other people th think of you? How many likes do you have, right? How many followers do you have? You know, in school, when I ask the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know what most of them say? I want to be a YouTube influencer. I want to be like Mr. Beast. Probably something you don't even know who Mr. Beast is. You're like, who is that? Ask your kids. They'll tell you right away. Uh, because he has more followers than most anybody, like a billion or so followers, and they make money off followers. So a lot of kids, they're like, I want to be an influencer. I want to be seen by other people and liked by other people. But that's a trap, isn't it? So Jesus is saying, do things secret between you and your Father in heaven and your reward will be great. And that's when he goes, you'll get a reward. And I love this. A reward is really different from a payment, isn't it? Um, when you're rewarded for something, most of the time as we do things that you're rewarded for, you don't expect any payment, 
I was talking to this kid uh, at church last month, and he had gone over to somebody's house, an older gentleman, and he just wanted to go over and help him out and serve him. And he was like, actually, he wanted to sort of hang out with him so he could just kind of get wisdom about certain things and uh, working around a farm and other stuff like that. And the guy at the end was like, I really appreciate this kid. I want to pay him something. And so the kid, I don't know, he's like 13 or 14. He didn't know what to do. And he's just like, all right, I'll take the money. But he went home and he said to his parents, I really don't feel good about taking the money because I didn't do it for that. I did it for another reward. And it melted my heart because I thought, that's the difference between a work and a good deed, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Like the, the good deed is something you do because you love somebody and you have a relationship with them. And work is something you do to get something in return. So Jesus is saying in these things, that's the way we have to look at it. These aren't things that we're going to earn something from God. They're just things that are going to enhance our relationship and we're going to feel rewarded by doing it. And that's a great, great feeling. And when you pursue a relationship like that, it's so much more of a blessing. Can you imagine trying to pursue a relationship with somebody that's based on like transactional uh, credit for things? I, I worked for like a summer as an Uber driver. And so I would take a lot of people on dates, you know, um, first dates. And I'd always get those guys that were trying to impress like the girl and get credit for it. And like, we had a word for this, it was like peacocking. You know, they're like trying to strut their stuff, but they're so fake about it. And so I'd pick up the guy usually first, and he'd be like, hey dude, you gotta do me a solid here. You gotta help me. And he'd give me a whole list of different things, right? That he wanted to do. And then he'd pick up the girl and he'd, he'd do all this stuff to just impress her. And I could tell it was just so fake. He'd be like, we're going to go to this restaurant, and I've um, got this job. And then he'd be like, uh, as I did the things he asked me to do, he's like, dude, you're going to get a big tip after this. I never got a tip from those guys. Never, ever, ever. And I was like, I, I so wanted to say after a while, girl, do not go out with this guy. Do not have a second date. He is totally fake about it. He is trying to do something to win something, and he's not just pursuing a relationship with you for relationship's sake. And that's the thing I've really had to come to grips with in my relationship with God, because even for like helping the poor, I kind of thought of it in a transactional way. As a Christian, grew up in a church where we did things sometimes so that people became Christians. Like we were helping the poor so that they might accept Jesus and see the goodness of Jesus. And I know that there were some good intentions behind that, but it made our work with the poor very transactional. Instead of that, we shifted. We realized, oh man, this is not rewarding. Something's wrong. Because you kind of feel when something's wrong in your heart, right? And uh, we shifted and, and we said, you know, we don't do things that 
especially for poor people, so that they become Christians. We do things because Jesus has been so good to us. And we expect nothing. And when we started to do that, do you know what happened? People's hearts started to open up to Jesus. Not because of really what we did, but because who Jesus is. And so I had to really change. I had to really repent of that in my life. And I felt like that's like that alignment with God because Jesus says, blessed are the merciful because they'll be shown mercy. It's, it's that alignment. And when you feel alignment with God and with other people, things open up. My son, um, he was saying to me, Dad, you know what? I, when I think of the word alignment, I think of when you're using the hose in the yard and it gets misaligned and it gets kinked and it's not flowing or it's just flowing really slow. And he said alignment is when you open that up and it starts to flow again. And he said that's like the flow that we're looking for with God and with other people. And these things will help us with that flow. And athletes call this, it's a spiritual concept, a flow state. Have you ever heard that, flow state? And athletes, you know, when they do, especially basketball players or baseball players, they actually say they feel as if the, the events around them slow down and they speed up. Race car drivers really have this. And if you watch that um, movie, um, what is it, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, the driver um, says, I can see the little spot on the road. He's going like 200 miles, 250 miles an hour. And, and race car drivers can do this because they say everything slows down around them and, and yet they're speeding up. It's a spiritual state of mind. And what Jesus is saying here is when we get aligned with God, especially through doing these things, the hose opens up. And the flow starts happening. And so, like, if you're... And I remember feeling this when I was, like, single. And I, I became a Christian when I was 23. And I was, like, not a very pure person. And I remember going on a date for the first time with kind of Christ expectations instead of world expectations. And I went on a double date. Funniest thing is my wife now was the date of the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that ironic almost? Or maybe it's a God thing. It's kind of a blessing. And, um, and we flew kites, and we had a picnic on the beach, and then we, like, dropped the girls off at their house, you know, at the end of the night. And I remember waking up in the morning the next day, and I was like, man, I feel awesome. I feel so good. I feel like the Holy Spirit is kind of flowing here. I, I wasn't drunk. I had a fantastic time. I didn't feel guilty about anything that I did. I looked forward to another date. That's like the flow state. You're feeling good, right? You feel like God is working. Or when you're a parent and you, know, you just sit around the table at these times, like you have family dinner and you sit back and everybody's laughing and they're having a good time and you've gone to church together and you've prayed and the three times that that happens per year, you're as a parent going, this is awesome. 
because you're like feeling the flow. You're feeling the flow of the Holy Spirit. God is opening up doors for you and you're, you're really celebrating the goodness of God. Or maybe you're volunteering, like you have a food pantry or something like that, that you're volunteering in, and somebody comes in, and you help them out, and you have like that great conversation with them. I just remember having some like really cool conversations with people, and you're not really looking for anything other than to encourage them, and you hear their story, and it makes you kind of cry, and then you give them a hug, and they leave, and you're like, I don't even know that guy's name, but I feel awesome. I feel like the flow is open here. And I just feel like I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do. I feel good with God. I feel good with mankind. I think we've all felt those things. Or you're at work and you're on a project and your team is just like sinking and you prayed about it before you've gone there and you just feel like God has opened up doors and everything's working the way it's supposed to work. And you come home and you're like, Man, if every day could be like today. I feel like those are the flow moments when we feel like God is opening up doors and we're, we're aligned, and we're aligned through these things, giving, prayer, and fasting. So let's close out. We'll, we'll talk about these things just briefly. We've talked a lot about giving to the poor, um, but Jesus talks a lot about this too in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 25, he, t- he tells this, parable of the sheep and the goats, right? And he says, at the end of times, people are going to come before God, come before Jesus, actually, and Jesus is going to say, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And when I had no clothes, you, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you came and you visited me. And the people say, when, when did we give you anything to eat, Jesus? I've never, this is the first time we've met. When did I give you anything to, to drink? When did, I, when did I clothe you or visit you in prison? And Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, least of my brothers, you did it for me. Doesn't that like just move your heart? That when you're doing things for people with a pure heart, that you're doing them for Jesus and to Jesus. I love the connection that Jesus says, when you do things for those who are in need, you're connecting with me. You're connecting with me. Prayer. Jesus says, you know, he gives us this prayer, the Lord's prayer. And he says, you know, when you pray, say uh, Luke does it really simple because his disciples come to him in Luke 11 and uh, they ask, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, say. And the word say there isn't like pray these concepts, pray, you know, like these thoughts. It's actually say those words. And he uses in, in the original language, it, you know, in, in the ancient Greek, you can make the verbs either like a suggestion or an imperative, a command. And Jesus uses the command word, so he's expecting us to say these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses or debts 
as we forgive those who trespass or our debtors against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How many of you grew up saying that in church? Raise your hand. It's kind of funny. And if you, if you look around, what you'll notice is it's the older people. Because we were more traditional in doing this. And I think we did the next generation in injustice because we wanted to get away from tradition because we didn't want to just say words. We wanted to really have our heart connected and our intentions were good. But we got to remember, this is scripture. These words aren't something somebody made up as a tradition. This is Jesus' tradition. And I think it's really important that we teach this to the next generation um, because what it does, it's a prayer of alignment. It's not the words, but it is the concepts. But if you don't know the concepts, how can you pray, pray them? You need to get the words first. You see what I'm saying? And so, our Father in heaven, oh, I'm in a relationship. I'm a child of God. That's what you're saying. And God, you're my Father. You're not distant. You're right there for me, and you're with me, and you're like a dad for me. And he's like, hallowed be your name. Just praise God. You're praising God to start out with. Sometimes my natural inclination is to go to God like, God, this is blown it so much. But no, Jesus says, don't say that. He says, go to God and say how great you are, God. And that will change your heart and get you in the right place. I love that. And then he goes on to say, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. Isn't that alignment? Not what I want, God, but your kingdom and your will. Oh, I love that. Help me to know what I need to know. Help me to say what I need to say. Help me to do what I need to do today. And help it to be your will, not mine. Then, you know, give us this day our daily bread. The emphasis in that, in that phrase is daily. Give us this day. This day. It's like, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus talks about that right after this. He's going to get to that. He's like, I want you to just live for this day. Don't think about all the things you got to do. What do you need to do this day? Isn't that a good way of thinking? You're not worrying? And then forgive us. Forgive us our sins. The ways that we trespass. The ways we try to, and I like trespass because it's like, don't step into what I'm supposed to do. Keep where you're supposed to be. And I, um, debtors is good too because it talks about it like sin kind of a thing. But trespass is, am I trying to be God in areas of my life? Am I frustrated because I want to control people? Am I frustrated because I'm not seeing what I want to see? And things happening the way I want them to happen, on my terms, on my timeline. And suddenly you're like, God's like, you're supposed to be way over there. You're way in my realm. You're not going to be happy. Go back over where you are supposed to be and just live this day and enjoy the things that the day has to bring. Isn't that good news? You know, don't trespass. And forgive those who do that to you. Because people are going to trespass into you. They're going to tell you how you should feel. They're going to tell you what you should do. They're going to try to control you. And you have to go, I'm going to let that stuff go. I'm just going to let it go. And then lead us not into temptation, because you, who knows what temptation is going to come our way. We don't know, right? But God knows, and he'll lead us. 
and deliver us from the evil one. We do have an enemy and is opposing us. So, Lord, help, me, help us to, to get away from that. And it kind of leads into fasting. But I hope that's helpful when you think about the Lord's prayer of knowing it so you can pray through it and your heart can move in the direction God wants you to do so you feel aligned with God. Fasting. Probably like one of the toughest ones for me because I like to eat food. <laughs> and it was funny because I was speaking about this uh, in the church that I normally go to. And uh, one of my friends goes, you know, I think you should take this fasting part because, and not just do prayer, because what God does here has to be connected to what God does here. And he pokes me in my big fat stomach, you know. And, he, and I go, I see what you're saying. I could skip a few meals and not really struggle, all right, right? And uh, he goes, no, 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 I'm not saying that. But fasting is something that Jesus did. And fasting is something that in the Bible we see has two main purposes. One is contrition, meaning like I'm really sorry about my sin and I'm fasting so that I can, I can feel the heart of God in the brokenness that I'm supposed to have over this. And I think that's a natural thing. Sometimes you don't want to even eat that much when we're just feeling cruddy about something or sorry about something. But the Jews have days of fasting, like even before the Day of Atonement, so that they can kind of like be sorry about what they sinned about. But then the second thing is purification. And that's much more something we see in the New Testament, but we see both. When the Apostle Paul is going down the road and he gets knocked off his high horse, and he goes into the city. He meets Jesus on the high horse. Jesus says, you know, uh, he says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then you're going to be blind, and you're going to go into the city, and somebody's going to help you. So he's blind, and he goes into the city. And what it says about him while he's there is he fasts for three days. And it's funny because God lets him kind of sit there for three days before he sends somebody, you know, Ananias, to come in and speak to him, and his eyes get cleared, and he's opened up. But then just a few chapters later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11, we see the church in Antioch, and they're, it says they're together, they're praying, they're fasting, and they're worshiping, okay? And the Lord speaks to them and gives them direction. It says, go take Paul and Barnabas and help them to go out and send them out to preach the gospel. And so the gospel comes into the greater area in Europe through that time. But they're praying and they're fasting so that they can be purified to hear from God. And that's what I, like, I really experienced because I'm like, oh, gee, I got to start fasting when I was doing this probably uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to fast and um, it was really profound. I said, I'm not going to fast to get something. Because a lot of times I would pray and like, oh, Lord, I really want this. Or I want guidance in this. So I'm fasting. But this time I, I really prayed, Lord, I'm fasting because I want to have a relationship with you. And I want to hear from you. I'm not going to do this some transactional way. I want a pure heart. And... It's amazing. I walked into school and I could feel much more this connection of a spiritual battle that was taking place where there were kids, and I work in special education, that are really being attacked by the enemy. 
struggling with all kinds of different things. And instead of looking at them as having diagnoses and problems, I could see that they were just really being embattled by something deeper. And I said, I gotta come around them. And I, I mean, I wouldn't pray out loud, but I'd walk behind them and I would just pray for them. And over the week, man, I started to see like this miraculous difference happening even in the kids initiating with me and relationships changing. And I was like, whoa, my eyes are open. Instead of trying to go after this on my own, on my own power, I need God to work. Jesus says it. He, he says like about some demon possession thing that the apostles were trying to drive out the demon and then they couldn't do it. He comes down. He goes, this type only comes out through prayer and fasting. There are some things in life that... All our good efforts cannot do. But somehow connecting and having our eyes open can really make a big difference. Government things, instead of complaining, imagine if we prayed a lot more. Woo! Those are big things. They might change. That's great. And the other thing that happened is I started to see all the Christians around me. People I didn't even know who are Christians. Like I... I changed classrooms, so I have this classroom on the hallway, and next down, next uh, door down is uh, a woman, Miss Grover, and, and I was walking, and this thought just popped into my mind, ask Miss Grover about singing, and just like a random kind of Holy Spirit thought, and so I was, I was like, oh, hey, Miss Grover, do you sing? And she goes, yeah, I sing at East Point where your son's a pastor. I'm on the worship team. I was like, oh, I didn't even know she was a Christian. And suddenly God started to open up all these Christian connections inside the school. And I, I, I don't think it was a coincidence. I think praying and fasting opened up my spiritual eyes. And I pray that God will do that for you as you maybe step into some of these things. And we're going to close out just with receiving your reward. What is the reward Well, I think you'll get a refined faith, that's for sure. I think you'll really come into contact with your inheritance in the kingdom of God, that you'll have more faith in God, and that will come through this alignment, but there's more. And if you turn, if you have a Bible, and you can go back to Genesis chapter 15, there's a little passage here that really got to me many years ago and changed my heart. You know, it's it's the story of Abraham. And Abraham gets these promises from God, and they're great promises. You're going to be a great nation. Um, You'll be a blessing to people in the future, and you'll have a son, and uh, you'll have the promised land. And uh, so he's looking at these promises, and he's seeing something, sort of inklings of them happening, but others just aren't there. And he's getting old. He's in his old age. He's over 80 now. I don't have a son. And I think he's starting to really question whether this, he's like, I've left everything, but I don't have anything. He's just won this amazing victory, too, in this battle where God guides him, his, his nephew and the king actually of Sodom before it's destroyed get captured, and he goes and he rescues everybody, and um, he comes back and they say, hey, take, the, take all the booty, and we'll just take the people, and he's like, nope. I'm not going to take anything because I, I don't want to be indebted in some way to any, anybody. And he takes a tenth at that point of his own stuff and he brings it to this, 
he brings it to this guy Melchizedek as a peace offering as a because he's the priest of Salem. Melchizedek, really mysterious figure in the Bible, only appears here. And it's a funny thing, you know what Salem means? Peace. So Melchizedek is the prince of peace. And he brings the sacrifice to the prince of peace. Who's the prince of peace? The ultimate prince of peace for us is Jesus. So he comes back, but he's still feeling, Abraham's feeling terrible. Because he's like, I don't have a son. I don't have anything. I'm not seeing the promises come. And maybe you can relate to that. And it says in verse, 15, in verse 1 of 15, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. You know what? He said, Abraham, I'm going to fulfill the promises, but I'm your reward. What's our reward? It's not the things that we might get. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful reward. And then at the, after this, he's like, I want to do something for you, Abraham. I want to do something really, I want you to remember this. And it's something that's really weird for us, but it's very common for Abraham because in this day, if you had somebody who was really powerful and you wanted to come under their protection, even as a nation, you would form a contract. It was called like a Lord vassal contract where you would come under them. And the way you did that is you you cut up a sacrifice and you put it on either side and you walk through the sacrifice. So what God says to Abraham is, I want you to take a, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a pigeon, and a dove and, and sacrifice them, cut them actually in half and put them on the side and line them up so they're in a column. And Abraham knows right away, we're making a contract here. That's how you made a contract in his day. And he's like, I'm going to walk through just like we do in the contracts and I'm going to say, the first, the, the, the weaker partner walks through first. And he says, may it be as it is to these sacrifices, may I be cut in half and slain and slaughtered if I do not keep this contract. And then the, the greater party would walk through second and say the exact same thing. May it be to me um, as it is to these sacrifices if I don't protect you when you need protection. So one comes and gives their loyalty and maybe some fruits of their labor, and the other gives their protection. And so Abraham does all this, and then a deep darkness comes over him. And instead of Abraham walking through, only God walks through. And he says, Abraham, I'm walking through. And it's in a symbol of a fire pot and a torch, and he walks through the two sacrifices. But he doesn't make Abraham walk through, because he knows Abraham, you can't be faithful. I'm going to credit your faith as righteousness here. And the amazing thing is, Abraham gets his son. But I think what God is, is doing here as he walks through is like, Abraham, you don't really know all that I have planned here. Because you're going to get your son, and I'm going to make a covenant with you but there's going to be a son that is the ultimate son who's coming. 
and where you and all your followers, that's us, were unfaithful, were unrighteous, faltered in the covenant. My son is going to walk through and take what you couldn't take. And all of your faulting, all of your failures are going to be heaped on him. And he's going to make you righteous. It always gets to me when I think of that because we have a Savior that all of our sorrows, all of our failures got heaped on and he took it and he died for our sins and then he rose triumphantly. So good. So good. That's the real son of the promise of Abraham. And that's why Abraham's our father of faith. So, today, as we close out here, for all of us who believe in Jesus, that righteousness, that right relationship with God, it's credited to us because of faith. We look to Jesus as our Savior. And it promises this, now that I've risen victoriously, I'll open up the floodgates for you. And what's available for you is a confidence that you can't even imagine, a joy that even surpasses anything, transcends all understanding, and a peace that passes understanding so that you'll have a pure heart and you'll see God because blessed are the pure in heart because they'll see God.